comfortable. This might be a long one. I say that every time. Actually, I never know, but it's usually in that 30 to 35 minute range. So some of you say it's too long. Well, listen to it in intervals. And some of you say it's too short. I need a little more. Or maybe I just imagine you think that way. Maybe none of you have ever thought that way. But today should be pretty, pretty, pretty good. All right, Father's Day was yesterday. Interestingly, today is my first day taking over daddy, daycare, daughter duties. The four Ds, daddy, daycare, daughter duty. So my wife went back to work today at San Francisco General Hospital, which means I truly need to follow the guidelines, which kind of means today's really day one of being a dad. And it's weird how that correlates with Father's Day yesterday. Not to say I wasn't a dad before. I still had time alone with this little baby, an hour here, a couple of hours there, and assisting my wife with the many, many, many responsibilities and duties. But truly, today I take over every feeding, every nap, all the recreation, all the books, all the singing, all the dancing, all the many dumb things we do to entertain these little kids just to make it through a day. So props to anybody doing it. Moms, dads, grandparents, guardians of the galaxy. There's no way to describe this. Either you've done it or you haven't. It's one of those things. It's like travel. I could tell you all of the places I've traveled that would bore you. The only thing I could say is just go visit. And I'm not even well-traveled. So if I told you about Italy and I spent 30 minutes telling you about Italy, it may be nice for you to hear about, but until you go to Italy, you don't really know about Italy. That's parenting. So until I truly take over here during this summer break, I don't really understand. Now I do. And the main thing is it's fun and it's hard simultaneously. I think most parents would agree. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, it's hard. That's the most simple way to put it. Clearly, this is a topic where you could discuss for hours and hours and hours with other parents, philosophy, achievements, development, observations. But I think just summing it up that way, yeah, it's fun and it's hard and everybody's different. Ah, there we go. By the way, there's a Mr. Rogers Neighborhood documentary coming out soon. That's going to be good. That's what I'm going to raise this girl with. We're not doing screen time yet, of course, but when we allow the kid to start watching TV, it's got to be the stuff that I enjoyed, right? Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Maybe a little Pee-wee's Playhouse, even though that Paul Rubin character got a little weird, didn't he? Got a little scary for me when I was young, seeing his mugshot. Didn't he have, like, long hair and a scraggly beard because he was masturbating in a movie theater? Who does that? Really, have we ever analyzed the humans that go into a public movie theater and start masturbating now i'm not going to go too deep into this even though i think you want me to but i'm not however for a little kid that loved peewee's playhouse loved it that was a weird moment to see him like on the cover of magazines at the grocery store the national Enquirer, paul rubin is it rubin or rubens with an s i don't know but either way seeing that mugshot ruined everything for me he went from being like my comedic idol to being a face I truly feared, like I probably had peewee nightmares after that. But going back for a moment to when I said I'm not really well-traveled, that's true. The Bay Area is so beautiful, you could travel within your own town. And San Diego, where I lived before, they call it America's finest city. It's actually accurate. It is. It's the most beautiful place. It's tropical year-round. You go too far south, you're in Mexico. You go too far west, you're in the ocean. And even as you travel north through Oceanside, 
it's just pretty up the coast. So San Diego is heaven. So when I say I'm not well-traveled, I don't feel like sheltered in a bubble. I have been to Mexico. I have been to Israel. I have been to Italy and some U.S. states here and there. That's about it. Do I desire more? Sure, of course. However, the places I've been in this state of California, in my opinion, are unsurpassed by anything I've seen when I've traveled abroad. So Yosemite is tied with Tahoe for just the most beautiful places on earth. Yosemite, you can't describe. You just got to tell somebody you got to go there. It's like if you ever met somebody from Japan or Australia or France or Afghanistan or any other country or Iceland or Greenland. And you were telling them where you got to go. Oh, you haven't been to the United States of America. You got to go to fill in the blank. Everybody's answer would be different. How do we give that advice? You can't see the United States of America in a week, in two weeks, even a month. You can't. So you got to tell somebody, an outsider, a foreigner, where to go. My list is too deep. You got to go to Yosemite. You got to go to Lake Tahoe. Now, I know some people would say, New York City. What about San Francisco? What about Vegas? Sure. New Orleans, Miami, a lot of great cities. But if you're in the mood to see the true beauty that this country has to offer, it's right here in California. Now it sounds like I'm just doing a verbal brochure. I work for the Chamber of Commerce. And come to California where the great waterfalls and hikes of Yosemite will keep you talking about it for years. And up the coast a little further, on the border of Nevada, well here, this is what I want to get to. Takes me a little while to get to the point, but I'm getting there. Just got back from Tahoe, the annual June trip to Tahoe, and it remains one of those places that is breathtaking every time. Some places you've seen it, you got it, you get it, you download it to memory, you say, that was fun, don't need to do it again. Tahoe, I need it in my soul, need it in my system. And it retains that small town feel, it retains that beauty, even though it's so well known and so many people come. And yeah, there's a Harrah's and a Harvey's if you need to fist pump, if you need to twerk a little on the dance floor, if you need to gamble, throw the dice. But really, it's a family-friendly trip, a few days. Get your feet in the sand. They have water sports. They have the slopes in the wintertime. Here I go. Once again, advertising for Tahoe. I don't know why. But I can unequivocally say there's no place I've ever seen on this planet that's nicer. I've seen nice places. I could say this place is tied with Tahoe, perhaps. But I've never ever seen a place nicer than Tahoe. And when I say it's still that small town feeling, you know, with the diners and the cafes, the little beaches, the ice creameries. The hiking trails all around, endless hiking. It blows my mind to think that in 1960, that's where the Olympics were, the Winter Olympics. And every time you arrive, going through Truckee into the north side, you will see the Olympic rings. And for years and years and years, taking family trips and then just solo trips with friends, you see the Olympic rings and you go, huh, the Olympics were here. I never really dissected that. The Olympics were here? It was like two roads in, two roads out. Nowadays, the Olympics, such a commercialized event. Millions upon millions of dollars being pumped into the Olympics. Go back to 1960. And I read this in a magazine last week. So let me just regurgitate all of it and probably get some of the facts wrong, but I'll give you the gist. Squaw Valley. Back in the 50s. New Squaw Valley. One chairlift. One man. Alexander Cushing one dream. They had one lodge. And this guy read in a Nevada newspaper 
that Reno, Nevada was bidding on the 1960 Winter Games. And he thought, huh, why not us? This story is bizarre. This story is extraordinary. This guy, Alexander Cushing, young man, lawyer, purchased Squaw Valley, founded Squaw Valley. And it was just, you know, nice little resort, chairlift, lodge, about one road in. And he thought, yeah, I kind of think the world should focus on my valley, Squaw Valley, for the Winter Olympics. So obviously this guy thinks big. And this is the time of the Cold War, so there were rumors that the U.S. might not allow athletes from communist countries in to compete. They squashed that real quick. Of course, Russians competed. Athletes from China competed. But it's interesting to think of the time historically. What was Squaw Valley back then? Tiny! Yet this guy Cushing had a good friendship with the governor, apparently, and said, I can make it happen. I make it happen. Hey, Don, what you need? How much money? I'll make it happen. What do you need? Moguls? I got it. What do you need? An arena? I got it. What do you need? Stands? Don't have it. That's true, actually. He said people can just stand on the mountain and watch the skiing. I'm not going to build stands. And guess what else? There was no bobsledding. Why? Cushing said, I don't want to pay for that. And they were like, all right, no bobsledding this year. This story sounds medieval, but this is 1960 in Tahoe. So he's awarded the Winter Games in 1957, which means he has a few years to build an arena for hockey and speed skating, to actually add some more slopes, add some more chairlifts, add some more hotels, add more sources of electricity and purified water. All of this was in the article I read. It was un-fucking-believable. I can't believe I went this long without the first F-bomb of the Here We Go podcast, but truly unbelievable. All of the things that needed to be added to Squaw Valley, little Squaw Valley, to get it ready for the Olympics. Now, at this time, the weather was so erratic that lift ticket sales were not very high. And Squaw Valley was not like a destination for skiers. It was just, you know, one of the resorts around Tahoe, very small. But now he's getting the funding for the Winter Games through state funding and the IOC. And all of a sudden, he's developing this area that seems to be ready. But the day of the opening ceremonies. And who designed the statues for the opening ceremonies? You guessed it, Walt Disney. I got a lot of fun facts coming at you in this story. Yes, the Walt Disney. No, not some other guy from San Leandro named Walter Disney. D-I-S-N-E-E. No, I'm talking about Walt Disney. Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, Goofy, Pluto. You got me? Walt Disney, yeah, he designed the statues for the opening and closing ceremonies at Squaw Valley. Maybe that fun fact in my head was more interesting than it sounds to you right now, but stay with me. So Alexander Cushing gets all the funding. He builds up Squaw Valley. They don't have bobsledding still. And then it's the day of the opening ceremonies. And it's a big fat blizzard. And it's not looking good. It's not looking good for anybody. Traffic jams like you can't believe. And anybody who's battled the Tahoe traffic jams, you can't even imagine what this was like. This is the Olympics! Vice President Richard Nixon is supposed to be helicoptered in. He could barely get in. A lot of the athletes could barely even see 10 feet in front of them. They're like, really, we're about to compete in this shit? And then something miraculous happens. It clears up. So the Winter Games in 1960 were only delayed one hour. The blizzard just went away. And then for a few weeks, the weather was nice enough. And they had a successful Winter Games. Now, of course, right afterwards, it was like never again. Never again. Richard Nixon got like one sentence to open the games. And apparently there was an issue with one of the male skiers flying into the gate and they wanted to watch it again. CBS, who paid about $550,000 for the rights to air the games, 
putting Tahoe on the map so everybody in the world could see Lake Tahoe up close and personal, which is now one of the top vacation destinations. But back then it wasn't. Back then people were watching these games saying, Tahoe? Where's Tahoe? But CBS, they inadvertently wanted to see a replay. So they went back to the video cameras and they watched this skier. Should he be disqualified? Should he not be disqualified? And it turns out that's the origin of instant replay. Because then CBS said, wait, this is good. Maybe our viewers should be able to see what our producers and directors just saw. Instant replay. Born in Lake Tahoe. I hope I have that right. If not, you could fact check this later. Fact checking podcasts. Bad idea. It'll just drive you crazy. You ever been listening to somebody else's podcast and you go, no, that's wrong. No, that's wrong. Hey, he got it wrong. She got it wrong. Don't drive yourself crazy. Just realize it's a podcast. It's just a person at a desk speaking into a mic without a big production team. That's what makes it beautiful. A grassroots, organic, raw effort to create. Here we go. Also, in the same magazine, and I'm rescinding what I said on the last podcast, that nobody's reading magazines anymore. I read a magazine when I was in Tahoe. So in the same magazine, there was a great article about the Grateful Dead playing these three concerts in Kings Beach in 1968. And they had a picture of the concert poster. Of course, the skeleton on skis. Isn't it weird before you ever hear the Grateful Dead's music, you probably think they're heavy metal with that logo. Lightning, skeleton, Grateful Dead. It almost has that sound. And then you hear them for the first time and you're like, oh, this is calm and this is mellow and this is folksy and this is trippy and this is melodic and this is jam band style and it is wonderful. As you can tell, I love the Grateful Dead. But this article said in 1968, they weren't really big yet, you know, big in the Bay Area, but not big throughout the nation. And the price of a ticket was three bucks. Three bucks. Come see the Grateful Dead at Kings Beach, at Kings Beach Bowl. And they put on these long shows and a lot of people in the audience tripping out on LSD, as the article said. And all of these people in attendance for any of these shows, they were seeing the Grateful Dead at the point where it was like, oh, okay, they're about to get big. But the dead heads were already forming. That's the interesting part about the Grateful Dead. You can't tell the story of the band without telling the story of their fans. Their fans are probably the bigger part of the story, how they would travel city to city with the Grateful Dead. They would like commit to the Grateful Dead like a cult. And even the band didn't feel totally connected. The band, they were still professional musicians. Not to say they were corporate, but they were still professional musicians. And yes, they did drugs and they lived the lifestyle, but they would admit, I've seen some documentaries where even Bob Weir admits, it got a little too big. You know, these deadheads got a little too big, bigger than what we expected. You know, fame is nice, but then when they're being worshipped by these people and it becomes a way of life to be a deadhead, I bet some of the musicians thought, all right, all right, all right, enough, enough. You know, thanks for enjoying our sound, but you took it to a level that's dangerous. Bunch of runaways, taking drugs, saying it all reflects the Grateful Dead. It's a lot of pressure to put on the band members. They're like, I don't know. I don't know if you should have dropped out of school and hitchhiked throughout the country with us. I mean, thanks, but I don't know. Brings up that fun topic of, have you ever seen a performer before they were truly a superstar? Like, they were still big. Like, the Grateful Dead was still a band. But then the people that were there in Kings Beach, you know, mellow little shows in Tahoe probably said, I was there in 68 before they truly became the dead. I bet a lot of people have a story about that. Oh, yeah, I saw this band. I saw Green Day in Berkeley when they were just a bunch of young punks. And then they became the Green Day, you know. Or I saw The Roots at the Phoenix Theater, a hollowed out movie theater in Petaluma before they truly became The Roots that you see with Jimmy Fallon. On the Tonight Show. 
tons of examples of that. And finally, I'm giving you a full magazine review of me reading a Tahoe magazine, but it said golf in Tahoe. And I read that article too. And I'm not just going to go down that path, but recently I got to play some golf too with a couple of very nice coworkers. And it was a reminder that I love this. Kind of forgot. Oh yeah, I love this. I only play like once or twice a year, but I now know what retirement is going to look like. All golf. I'm just going to live there. Kids will be in college. Kids might be out of college by then. I'll wake up with my wife. We'll have coffee in the morning. She'll know where I'm going for the next three or four hours, and then I'll be back. But I would love to become the old guy that golfs four or five days a week. Would I get sick of it? Hopefully not. And I thought about that. Could it be my true mindful hobby where you get into the zone? You're not thinking about all the stressful things of life. But you're outdoors. You're using your brain. What club should I use here? How many yards am I way? How many over par am I? How many under par am I? So you do use your brain a little bit. Gives you a chance to have pretty fun interactions with other people. The health benefits of golf are so far beyond the actual rules of the game. And a lot of people afterwards, they stick around for a hot dog or a burger and fries and a beer. It's just a healthy, healthy sport in so many ways. The one thing, the one thing is, oh yeah, the price. 50, 60, 70 bucks a round. Makes you want to become a private member of a course. Makes sense. If you play enough golf, you should probably become a member of a course. But everybody needs a mindful hobby, right? And when I say mindful, I mean when you're doing it, that's all you're doing. I've never surfed, but when I hear surfers describe surfing, I love it. Just sounds amazing. You're one with the ocean. Your thoughts are just present. You're grounded. You're centered. And oh yeah, you're getting a workout. Yoga. I've done yoga in my life probably nine or ten times. Loved it every time. Aspire to do more, of course. But people who do yoga like every single morning, sure you get the fitness benefits but also the mental health benefits that go along with that or just swimming laps whatever you do runners they get the runners high none of those really fall into what i'll be doing later in life i'll be a duffer i've decided i'm committing to this beautiful game called golf and in my lifetime i'll have a hole in one if i play enough golf and that's really my only goal You know, when you reach an age where you're no longer playing competitive sports, it's the little things you have to focus on. Like if if you ever go bowling, you think, hmm, could I ever get close to a 300? The answer is, of course not. But at least it keeps you going. Same with golf. Can I ever have a hole-in-one on a par three? Probably not. But it'd be a fun little accomplishment. Almost feels like you would conquer something in that sport. And the other thing about golf is you just want to play it everywhere. Want to play it in the desert, want to play it in Ireland, want to play it in Scotland, want to play it here where I live, want to play it in San Diego. You could just kind of make it a part of any vacation and you see all the many different courses and it's beautiful. Even non-golf fans could look at a course and go, oh yeah, that's beautiful. Sand, water, trees, greenery, beauty. All right, I got a few questions. I think this will be the theme of the podcast. Questions. And if you know the answers to any of these, feel free to tweet at me. Tweet at you. At J Rosenberg 957. I got a few questions I wrote down. And I really don't know the answers. I could pontificate. I could explore the answers. But I really don't know the answers. So help me out a little bit. Uh, question one. I wrote down. Every 7-Eleven smells so bad. Why? And it's the exact same smell. In every 7-Eleven. In my life. I've probably been to over 100 7-Elevens. Because I love them. 
What kid doesn't love Slurpees? Or just big fat nachos with that cheese splattered all over those unhealthy chips. And yeah, I'll douse it with some jalapenos. I've had egg salad sandwiches at 7-Eleven. I've had tuna salad. That's not fresh fish. I've had tuna salad sandwiches at 7-Eleven. The taquitos? Oh yeah, I've had those. The pizza? Had it. Hot dogs? Corn dogs? Had it, had it. Love it, love it, love it. But the smell, when you walk in, it doesn't really represent any of the things I just described. It doesn't smell like pizza or hot dogs or nachos or Slurpees. It smells like a dead rat covered in chili, old chili, in every 7-Eleven. It just hits you in the nose right when you walk through the door. Boom, boom. And there's always a painter in the corner. Have you noticed that? Always a guy in white overalls in every 7-Eleven, just in the corner, scratching tickets or reading magazines or just looking dirty, looking real dirty. That smell that singes the nostrils, like Sex Panther, Paul Rudd's cologne, and Anchorman, I don't understand it. It's like every morning a 7-Eleven employee has to kill a rat, put it in the corner, cover it with old moldy chili, and then go about their day and just watch everybody's reaction as they come in. It's every 7-Eleven. There's no other chain like this that retains the same smell in every single one. Like you've been to a bunch of Taco Bells or McDonald's or Big Fives. Think about any chain, Chili's, Applebee's, any chain. They don't all smell alike, do they? Why does every 7-Eleven smell so bad? And it's the exact same smell in all of them. Is it the newspaper stand? Is it the frozen goods? Is it the cologne of the cashier? I really don't know. But it's a question that I think we should explore. Here's another question for you. Real estate agents... Why are they taking such dramatic headshot photos? I look in newspapers, I look in magazines, I look online, I just Google homes for sale. I just like to see this painful topic of how expensive are the homes around me. There's nothing more demoralizing and discouraging. It's true bewilderment to see the prices of these homes. You know, just like a two bed, one bath going for $800,000, 900 square feet. I understand you pay for the area, but holy shit, these homes and apartments and condos, they were never, ever intended to be this much, this exorbitant. It's pretty wild. No more middle class around here. This will be my econ rant. We're losing the middle class around here. Oh, but back to the question. Why? Why do these real estate agents in every photo for every listing have to take such dramatic headshot photos? I don't even truly understand why we need to see any photos of these people. They're not like famous celebrities. It's not like I'd ever look at a place in Corte Madera and go, ooh, I like the look of Tom Sanders. He looks refined. He looks like a guy I can trust. Or, ooh, I like Karen McAllister. She's in a tasteful pantsuit with a concerned smile and a pearl necklace. And I like that. Who invented this? Why do all these real estate agents have to have these Hollywood dramatic photos? I don't get it. And does every headshot photo remind you of the old Head and Shoulders commercial where the actress and the actor had dandruff on their black turtleneck and they had to circle it on the photo? Like, you know, the other day I was trying to take photos and I noticed this. Why are you wearing a black turtleneck and not washing your hair and taking headshot photos? Head and Shoulders. It sold me though. I didn't even have dandruff, but I remember telling my mom as a young kid, we need head and shoulders. I can't have dandruff on my black turtlenecks if I ever need to take a dramatic headshot photo. Great commercials. 
But maybe somebody knows the reason. Oh, real estate agents all have to take dramatic headshot photos because tweet at me. I'm interested at jrosenberg957. It's almost comical, but the amount of photos in every real estate magazine or even the open homes section in a newspaper or online, I don't get it. Maybe all of these people are aspiring theater actors or movie stars. I mean, maybe that's the secret. All real estate agents quietly are hoping to land a role in a sitcom. And they all quietly audition under other names, but they also use the headshot to sell you a house. And finally, here's a big question for you. This one's the big one. What's sleep all about? You ever thought about sleep? It's an involuntary thing we do, right? We don't voluntarily go to sleep. I mean, we lie in our bed, but we have to go to sleep. So we lie down and then just go unconscious. And then all of a sudden our mind turns on a movie called A Dream based in some things that feel relatable and some things that are just bizarre. I'm not trying to get into dream interpretation. I'm trying to get into what is sleep. And I know there's probably a science answer. Well, you need to replenish your brain synapses because when they fire off, it really deadens your blah, 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 cerebral this and frontal this and lobes. I don't want the science answer. I just want the awkward, what are we doing? Response. We put on comfy clothes, right? Pajamas. And we lie down on a pillow. We say goodnight. Maybe if there's someone in bed with you or if you sleep solo, that's fine. And then you just go, all right, I'll be unconscious for the next seven, eight hours. And I'll wake up like nothing happened. Huh. That was a lot of time to just be unconscious lying down on a comfy mattress. You got to think. The first humans that ever discovered that we have to sleep, the first humans, I wonder if one of them fell asleep first and everybody else was like, oh, clearly you're dead. Like, huh. Well, Marvin just died and he looked a little drowsy before and then he fell and then they waited eight hours and then Marvin got up. I guess they would have seen Marvin sleeping. I'm acting like Marvin is probably the first human to ever go to sleep, but that had to be the moment where people were like, oh, you're dead. Wait, you're not dead. Oh, we just do this every day. Oh, we do this. Okay. We go to sleep and then Marvin got up and he's like, you guys ever start thinking while you're unconscious about, you know, like a cousin or something in the ocean, or a fear of public speaking when your teeth fall out of your face, or a snake attacking you, or all the dream motifs that I could do right now. You ever been shot in your dream? Has anybody ever been shot in their dream? You don't die, but you just sit there shot? Kind of hurts, but you're not dead? It's weird. I've been shot in my dream a few times. Boom! Didn't see it coming. I probably shouldn't do the sound effect of a bullet hitting me in my dream, because my baby is sleeping in the other room, and I have my monitor in my hand right now. How about that for a podcast feat? This is my greatest achievement ever. Recording this weird podcast with a baby sleeping and hoping not to wake her up in the other room. But we got the white noise. Don't you worry. We got the white noise action. And by the way, it's not just me and a baby. Okay? Let me really toot my own horn. Is it tout my own horn? I don't know. But let me play the horn for a moment. It's a dog too. Oh yeah. You thought I would go the whole podcast without mentioning that responsibility? So it's a dog walk with the baby. You put the baby in the ergo. So you basically wear the baby on a frontal backpack and then you walk the dog. It's not easy. It's not easy. And why are the conversations with other dog owners so damn weird? Only dog owners know. You approach, you immediately say, he's nice. He's nice. There's never been an aggressive beagle in the history of this breed. And I still feel the need to tell people he's nice. There's never been a beagle attack in the history of the world. 
But every dog walk I've ever been on for the last 12 years, if another dog is walking towards us, I go, he's nice. He's nice. Don't worry. He's nice. He won't viciously attack you and your dog. And the other people do the same. It doesn't matter what they're walking. Could be a little shih tzu. Could be a big old bloodhound. They go, he's nice. Or she's nice. But this morning, in all honesty, the lady said, Oop, we gotta go. We gotta go. Can't make new friends. We can't make new friends. I didn't know if she was talking to me or her dog. But that was a weird thing to say. Can't make new friends. And she had her earbuds in. And she was in tights. Big woman. Much bigger than me. And I thought we were going to have a hi, hello, good morning, but no, we can't make new friends. That stayed with me. That'll stay with me. We can't make new friends. What did you think? I was going to invite you to my daughter's first birthday party? No, all we're doing is a sniff and announcing our dogs are nice. But this lady actually said, we can't make new friends. We can't do that. We have too many friends. Uh, She was in a rush. She probably should have just said, I have no time for you. That would have been more normal than we can't make new friends. All right, I think I got to everything, except Louis C.K. That'll be my big cliffhanger. Like on What Up With That, when Keenan Thompson never gets to Lindsey Buckingham, played by Bill Hader, on Saturday Night Live. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? This whole floating Louis C.K., I'll get to that in the next podcast. Uh, Stay tuned for that. Check me out on Twitter, at jrosenberg957. I'll tweet at you. You tweet at me. Maybe we could answer these questions together. 7-Eleven, why does it smell? Why do real estate agents take dramatic headshot pictures? And then what's sleep? What's that all about? All right, right now I'm going to tiptoe around my own home and drink coffee and squeeze in a shower, things that you didn't need to know. But I appreciate you tuning in. That's episode 20. Done 20 of these. Here's to 20 more. Everybody raise a glass. Here's to 20 more. For he's a jolly good he. Oh, I don't know the words. Episode 20 in the books. I'll talk to you later.